as we come now before the very Word of God. If you'd like to read along with me, we'll be here this morning in Matthew chapter 27. If you're using a pew Bible, the number's there in the bulletin for you. Matthew chapter 27. And before we read, would you please pray with me? Lord, we know that your way is perfect and that your word is true. That these words of your holy scripture are the ultimate source and wellspring of truth and life for us. So would you help us now to attend to your word with eagerness? Open our hearts to believe these things, our ears to hear these things. Would you draw us near to you through them? Help us to see Jesus here, that we would bow before you. Guide us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. We have a good number of verses to take up this morning. Uh, We'll begin here in Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 26, and we'll read a good bit after that. But Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 26. Then he, the he there is Pilate, then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. 
And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. This is the word of God. Now, there are a lot of heavy things going on here. And it will overwhelm us, or at least overwhelm me, if we try to take all of this in at once. So as important as this whole scene, every part of it is, we're going to narrow our attention to focus mainly on one aspect of this scene, which is in verse 37. Let me read it again. And over his head they put the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. So that's what we're focusing upon. Now, to understand this, as always, we need to set this particular verse in its wider context. Last week, if you were here with us, we finished up the end of chapter 4 in Matthew, which was a good bit back now. There, Jesus had just begun his ministry of preaching and teaching and healing. Today now, we're in chapter 27, so, so we've made a big, about three-year leap to the end of Matthew. We're doing this in preparation for Easter. And in these chapters, this is where we see Jesus in the midst of what's often called his, his passion, that is, his, his suffering on the cross, by which he will save sinners. This section is really the climax of the book. It's, in a lot of ways, the climax of all of human history, really, that we get to see here Jesus' death and resurrection. And Matthew, the author, rightly devotes a lot of time and detail to these final moments of Jesus' life because there are so many significant things happening in a very small amount of time. So just by way of quick summary, before this section that we've jumped into, just within the last 24 hours prior to the text, even since the last sundown, if we were to go back and read them, we would have seen Jesus have the Last Supper with his disciples, where he would give them the very strange, mysterious, powerful words, this bread is my body, This cup is my blood and the covenant poured out from many for the forgiveness of sins. And he promises them there that he will drink of that cup anew in his father's kingdom. We also see Jesus wash the feet of his disciples. That he gives them a new command that they would love each other as he had loved them. We see Jesus then betrayed in the garden of Gethsemane by Judas, who had been one of his longtime followers and has now been entered into by Satan. And Jesus there is arrested under the cover of night like a common criminal. And then after that time, there are six distinct trials that Jesus goes through, both officially and unofficially, that he, between the beatings and the mockings, he's questioned by various members of the religious Sanhedrin, by the Jewish King Herod, and by the Roman governor Pilate. And in response to all of these trials, Jesus barely speaks a handful of words. So by now, at the point where we've entered in, it's now Friday morning, 
Jesus has not slept a wink all night. He's been beaten down in body, and I'm sure in some way in mind. And we've just heard the final decree by Pilate that Jesus is condemned to die by crucifixion. So after more beatings and mockeries, then we get to see in the text, the soldiers then are marching Jesus out to a common site of execution just outside the city, the place that's called Golgotha, the place of a skull. And Jesus initially is made to carry his own cross along that way to the spot, at least to carry it as far as he's physically able. They have to make Simon of Cyrene carry it for a while just to help him do it. But in this time, Jesus, as far as he carries that cross, is likely not carrying the entire cross. You know, as we often see in paintings and movies, what's likely the case is that the stakes, or the, the, the vertical poles of the cross, were probably already standing at this common site of execution either standing or at the ready. In fact, it's possible that they were even pre-used, that they had been hung with convicts before. There was perhaps even evidence of the people who had been hung upon them before. So what Jesus is carrying is not the full cross. He's most likely carrying what in Latin was called the patibulum, or the crossbar that his arms would have been spread across. And even carrying just that part by itself would have been a big undertaking. Scholars estimate that it would have weighed somewhere roughly around 100 pounds. And, and as he carried it, it's also likely that his hands were somehow bound, strapped, tied out across this cross beam, which means at every stumble, at every fall, he would not be able to catch himself. You can imagine the brutality that that would cause just in walking. This was a brutal beginning to a long, brutal execution. Now, I am not going to go into the whole process of the act of crucifixion. I'm not going to go into most of the gore and the guts about it, not because I think it's too much for us to handle, although it is very hard to stomach if you think about it too long. But I'm not going to go into most of that because the gospel writers like Matthew here, while they don't shy away from giving us some of the bloody details, they also don't focus upon the gore of the cross. Matthew just says, and they crucified him and moves on. Instead of focusing on the gore of the cross, the gospel writers focus on the impact of the cross. That is, what is the, the meaning of the cross for us and, and also for God? Now, even though I'm not going to focus on the details of it, I will mention one detail of the cross that is pertinent for us today. So crosses in that time came in various physical forms. Some crosses, although 
sounds like it may not be called a cross in this way. Some crosses were in the form of an eye, were just sort of that vertical, vertical beam, and the hands would be tied up over the person. Some crosses were in the form of an X, where the limbs were spread out in that direction. Some crosses were in the form of a capital letter T, that is, the patibulum would just be set on top of the beam already in place. And some were in the form of a lowercase t, like the form of cross we're familiar with here. This is the type that's used in the crucifixion of Jesus. And we know this in part because of our verse that we've just read, verse 37, over his head they put the charge against him. That is, there was a part of the cross that extended up over Jesus' head, and this is the place where they posted the charge. Now, what's that? The charge was the written grounds for the execution. It's what the person has been convicted of. So that charge would be written on a white tablet, uh, which is called a titleist. That's what John also calls it. The titleist, with that written charge, would either be hung around the criminal's neck as they walked to the site, or carried before the criminal by the, by the guard. And then once they arrive at the crucifixion site, it would be posted near the cross somehow, or in this case, on the cross over his head. And the idea behind this in posting the charge is so that everyone could see as they pass by this public execution area, everyone could see and read and know why this person was killed. That charge is meant to be a warning to everyone. Don't do this. Don't be like this. That was the intent of it. Now, if you didn't know the details of that, I'm sure you recognize at least the idea of the titleist, okay? Because you, you sometimes in, in art and medieval, modern, modern uh, art about the crucifixion, a tiny square above Jesus' head, you know what I'm talking about? And, and maybe you've even seen it sometimes with the letters I-N-R-I written on it, you know? Have you ever wondered what Inri Means See the Inri that's above Jesus' head? That's not one word. That's an abbreviation of the, of the first four letters in Latin. Four, so Inri is actually just the four letters I-N-R-I that stand for Jesus, Nazarenus, Rex, Judeorum, or Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. That's how it's often depicted in art, but in reality, as it happened, the titleist wouldn't have been some tiny little square with an abbreviation. That's not very helpful, especially if you don't know what the abbreviation means, right? LOL only helps if you know what LOL means, or BRB. If you don't know what INRI means, that's not going to help. 
The idea is that they want people to see the whole charge against him. In John's Gospel, even, we're told that the charge was written in three different languages, in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So this would have been a fairly large tablet that's hanging over Jesus' head, written large enough for people to clearly see below him as they pass by. This big titleist would give the clear charge to everyone, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. That's what's written above him. Now we need to ask the question then, what kind of criminal charge is that? There were lots of reasons why the Jewish religious leaders wanted Jesus dead. When they put Jesus on trial in their own courts, in the religious courts, before they sent him on to Pilate, the main charge against Jesus was a charge of blasphemy. That is, they knew Jesus had called himself and received the calling of Christ, Messiah, Son of God, Son of Man, who will come on the clouds of heaven, which they knew then Jesus was equating himself with God. And if that's not true, that is blasphemy. But the Romans don't really care one whit about the religious stuff connected to blasphemy. I mean, you can call yourself God if you want. You can call yourself a chicken for all I care. You know, so they, when they brought Jesus to Pilate, they brought him with a different criminal charge. They brought him with the charge, essentially, of treason. They were accusing Jesus of being some sort of political insurrectionist. One who would threaten to overturn the Roman government and governing leaders. Which is why, earlier in this chapter, in verse 11, we hear the main charge. Jesus stood before the governor, Pilate, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, You have said so. Now, if Jesus is convicted of what amounts to political treason, that would have been amongst the highest of crimes in their day and punishable by death. Which it's worth noting, by the way, that the two guys crucified on either side of Jesus, you notice there's one on his right and one on his left, they were probably executed for a very similar sort of crime. In my translation, they're called robbers, and they probably were that in some sense, but robbery or theft by itself was not a cause for the death penalty in Roman law. So they must have been much more than that. These men were almost certainly in league with the guy called Barabbas. You know, the guy we've cut in just at the end of that scene, so we missed hearing about it, but the guy who gets released in place of Jesus. And Barabbas is described as one of the rebels who committed murder in the insurrection. That's Mark's account of it. He's one of the rebels who committed murder in the insurrection. That is, Barabbas and the guys with him seem to have been part of some zealous revolutionary group that were trying to turn political power in their direction. And it didn't pan out because these guys got caught, charged, convicted, and now crucified for what they'd done. 
So we don't know much about these guys on either side of Jesus. We don't even know their names, but we can imagine what their titleists above their heads might have read. This is Dismas, violent insurrectionist. Or this is Gestus, murderer and treasonist. And between them now we have Jesus with a charge above him that is in some ways similar, in other ways different. Different enough that for the chief priests, what finally becomes Jesus' final charge above his head, for the chief priests, it wasn't good enough for them. They tried to get Pilate to change the words of the titleist at the last minute. They said, you should write instead, this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate says, what I've written, I've written. And so as Jesus is crucified, we're left with the words above his head, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. This charge was not only used as a criminal explanation, the reason for his death, it was also used, we see here, as a source of, of mockery. And the soldiers scoff at Jesus, not for his actions, not for his appearance or for his attitude. They, they scoff at him for what seems to be to them some sort of ridiculous, silly claim of nobility and power. The response to them is to turn Jesus into some sort of rag doll, I suppose, to be, to be kicked around. They strip him naked, except for a big fancy scarlet robe they put on him. They, they twist up a crown of thorns upon his head, and they, as a scepter, they give him the reed of a plant to put in his, in his hand, and they bow to the knee before him, which I'm sure then was in sing-songy to uh, tones, you know, oh, hail, king of the Jews, and laugh, and laugh at what a pitiful sight this Jewish king is. It wasn't just uh, the soldiers. The mockery continued all the way to the cross. The people that passed by derided him, we're told, and the chief priests loudly call into question all that Jesus had taught and said about himself. They even address this claim to kingship in verse 42. He saved others. He can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him, they say. You know, true kings just don't end up like this. And I suppose, in a sense, that's true. This king does not end up like this either. You know, we, we as believers see here the profound irony in much of this whole scene, but particularly in the titleists. 
that what was meant to be a criminal condemnation, a cautionary tale, a shameful mockery upon him, that very same thing proves to be true. That this is Jesus. This is the King of the Jews, the people of God. Kingship is one of the main themes throughout the whole book of Matthew. So when Jesus is preaching, the summary of his preaching is the kingdom of heaven is at hand. By that, Jesus doesn't just mean that the kingdom is coming. He means he is the king who is bringing this kingdom. Even the very first words of this whole gospel of Matthew, if we were to look at the first lines of the first chapter, we hear this is the book of the line of Jesus Christ the son of David. The son of David, then, is is this Jesus who sits on the throne in line of David, the one that the Lord has promised to establish his reign forever. This is the king, Jesus. None of this, of course, I hope, is new to us. You know, I'm not in the business of, of, of preaching new things. I'm not trying to to cook up the newest thing. We, we already know the kingship of Jesus. We celebrate it. We often talk about it with joy and with thanksgiving. So we know this, but along with that, there is something striking about the placement of this particular truth here. That his kingship is announced at this time and in this way. There is something significant to the words of Jesus as king on the title list, particularly above the cross. And to carry us here to the end, let me just briefly make three observations that I think are helpful for us about this. The first is this, that God's truth may be paradoxical. God's truth may be paradoxical. So there there are many true things that could rightly be said about Jesus at his crucifixion. You know, he's the suffering servant. He's the lamb that was slain. He's the sacrifice for sin all of those words are not only true, they are particularly fitting to this occasion where we see Jesus at, one of his, at his weakest moment, really. And yet the sign that hangs above him is not lamb that was slain, it's this is the king. There is something sort of paradoxical about that. There are many times where the scene around us does not fit with our understanding of what is true or of what we think ought to be true. You know, there were some that stood at the foot of the cross and asked Jesus, if you're really king, why don't you come down? And we see versions of that today, do we not? Maybe even in our own hearts. You know, Jesus, if you're really the king, why is there so much war? Jesus, if you're really the king, why are there still thousands of babies being murdered in the womb? Jesus, if you're really the king, why am I struggling with so much pain and heartache? 
Jesus, if you're really the king, why don't you go ahead and put just that final crushing blow to Satan? There are many mysteries here, but let me remind us that none of those things make the truth of Jesus' kingship untrue. It is okay to wrestle with hard things, but we do not want to allow them to stand in the way of our trust and belief in Jesus. Even if it's, if it's paradoxical, even, even if it's beyond my understanding how all these things can fit in the same, same box, truth isn't contradictory, nor in a sense is it complex to understand. You know, the words of the Titleists are not scholarly doctrines, as much as we may love those. The, the words of the Titleists were not technical terminologies. The words weren't, this is Jesus, the propitiation. Important word, but that's not what we hear here. The words are just plainly, this is Jesus the King. Do you believe that to be true? God's truth may be paradoxical. The second observation God's truth may come through unbelievers unaware. God's truth may come through unbelievers unaware. It's interesting to observe that the actual inked words, whatever it was, however it came to be, the inked words of the titles were not written by Matthew, not written by Peter or John or by any other follower of Jesus. They're written by Pilate, a Roman governor. And Pilate spoke words truer than he realized. We hear a similar sort of thing uh, not long before this scene from Caiaphas, who's the high priest at the time. So he and the, the other uh, priests were meeting together to plot and try to kill Jesus. And we hear this little uh, scene in John chapter 11, verse uh, verse. 50, here are his words. The, the high priest says this. You don't understand, he's speaking to the other priests, you don't understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. That's his argument for trying to get rid of Jesus. Better that one man should die so that the whole people should not perish. So in Caiaphas's mind, he's just thinking practically here. We've got to get rid of Jesus before he leads our whole nation astray with all of his signs and miracles and wonders and teaching, people are starting to believe him. So we better, we're better off killing the one than having him kill us all. And there's actually a very profound theological truth in there that he's not even aware of. That he was right in his words, that it actually is necessary that this one man, Jesus, die so that the whole nation would not perish. Because without the death of Jesus, we would still be in our sin. Without the death of Jesus in our place, we would be without hope and under the very wrath of God. 
So in both cases, in the case of Pilate and of Caiaphas, there is truth spoken through their very mouths that that God has seen fit to speak words that are true even through unbelievers unaware. And that should give us pause as we listen and engage with other people around us, particularly with people who are not Christians. Third and final observation. God's truth is secured by his sovereign reign. God's truth is secured by his sovereign reign. The Lord God Almighty is in total control here in this scene. Complete control. You know, at the time, I'm sure it would have seemed to Jesus' followers that everything was coming apart. Everything we've done is just unraveling thread by thread. The whole world is crashing down. But this is all part of God's perfect plan to save his people from sin. We hear in the book of Proverbs this little verse, a king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and the Lord turns that heart wherever he wills. Which means that this Titleus, which is written by Pilate, was not just random words out of his own mind. The pen of Pilate was turned by the sovereign hand of God to give us a secure reminder that even amid all the, all the mocking cries, amid all the plots and deceptions, amid every drop of gall and every drop of blood, amid the clouds of darkness of death, even amidst a march of the very gates of hell itself, hanging over the head above it all, the Lord has sovereignly posted the words of true and glorious gospel. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Let's believe what he said. Would you pray with me? Lord, oh, we, we often sing the words of the hymn that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet, and that's true. Let us never forget that. Press these things upon our heart then. Help us to see you as king, to believe you as king, and to honor you as king over all things. Stir that in us that we might bring you the praise and worship that you deserve. We ask your grace in this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.